I am Christina here with Leah Mills, amazing human rights advocate. Uh, Leah, thank you so much for speaking with us. Now, you have been uh, advocating human rights and, and a pro-life stance since you were, what, 12 years old? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into that at 12? When I was in grade 7, um, I was given a speech project as part of an English class, and we were asked to just pick a topic to write a speech about. And, and so I prayed and I asked God what topic I should do, and he suggested the topic of abortion. And that was not an issue that my family had talked about a lot, so it was really not on our radar, but... I kind of naively <laughs> went along and was like, oh, that sounds great. And basically, I went to a public school, and so this caused a lot of controversy. The long and short is that after we presented, I, I presented my speech, my family and I decided to record a video because we wanted to show a few friends. Uh, lo and behold, 2.7 million people see it. And it was quite <laughs> accidental, but that was how we kind of first got involved in the issue of abortion. But it's so, something that I'm very passionate about now. So It's almost like... It chose you, <laughs> being yes, so young. Yes, in many ways, yeah. And, and kind of uh, through your life for a whole loop, so uh, mm -hmm. in, a, in a good way. Now, you have a unique way of describing your stance on life issues. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, sure. Well, I am a student in a political science and women's studies program, and that has forced me to kind of reconcile my pro-life view with my views about women. And so when I introduce myself to people, particularly in my program, I introduce myself as being pro-woman, pro-choice, and pro-life. And I, I think it's obvious why I'm pro-woman. I mean, I am a woman. I love women. And the main reasons why I'm pro-life is because I know that abortion is not the best solution to women and for women. And, and basically, it's a cop-out solution that allows us as a society, to say, we'll address the pregnancy, we'll get rid of the crisis pregnancy, but we won't get rid of the underlying reasons why you are unexpectedly pregnant and why this is a crisis. So, you know, things like poverty, things like abuse and homelessness, these are all the underlying issues. And then I, I say that I'm pro-choice because I think it's, uh, first of all, I, I, I do support choice. I mean, I, I'm a woman going into politics, for goodness sakes. Like, that is a big choice that wasn't able to be made many years ago. But I also recognize that choice is, what, is not what is at stake here, because women are being actively coerced into having abortion, and realistically, abortion is one of the, on is the only solution that is publicly funded and sponsored um, you know, when a woman is, is in a crisis pregnancy, she isn't told, well, there are all these resources for adoption, or there are all these resources you choose to have to keep the child and raise that child. There, there is none of that discourse. And so all women are told is that abortion is funded by the government of Ontario, that it's an option that they can choose. And so they're kind of, you know, coerced into this decision, whether indirectly that way or directly from uh, the, the influence boyfriends, husband, medical staff, friends, family, etc. Now, you're a young woman in university now, and when you're with your classmates and you're expressing that you are, you know, pro-life, pro-choice, and pro-woman, what kind of response do you get? I've been told that I cannot be a feminist because I am pro-life, which I find is ironic because some of the, the earliest feminists were radical, um, hardcore champion, champions of women's rights, but were also incredibly pro-life 
and supportive of family values. I don't believe that it's an oxymoron, as people have told me. I believe that it's very, very possible. And that's what I tried to talk about in my classes. And you experienced a very unique situation recently in a feminist research class um, where you faced actually serious confrontation. Um, Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, basically what happened is my my professor in in this feminist research class was talking about the importance of language. And so she was... She decided to use the example of abortion, and she was explaining why she never uses the term pro-life, but she only ever uses the term anti-choice. And so she kind of continued on explaining that they're anti-choice, you know, people who oppose abortion, they hate women, they hate choice, and this was kind of the rhetoric that was coming on. And she was also saying things like, you know, I only ever use the word fetus. Even at baby showers, I refer to them as fetus showers. And, and so this is kind of the rhetoric that I was hearing. And I decided to raise my hand, and, and all I said was society in general restricts choices all the time. You know, I, just because I'm a woman and I have control over my body doesn't mean that I can go injure another individual. doesn't mean I can go you know, assault another individual. That is, that is a choice that I can make, but society deems is wrong. And so what I was explaining to them is that pro-life individuals do support choice. They just ask abortion onto the list of choices that they believe are is wrong due to the moral and ethical nature of the issue. Now, that kind of create, create widespread controversy, and what resulted was that the, for the rest of the class, kind of different people were commenting about, you know, how it's not possible to be pro-woman and pro-life. So, And this but, led to you actually getting removed from yeah. the online group for this course. Yeah, basically there was there was just a Facebook group that had been created to support students and ask questions regarding the, the work for the class. And, see, I didn't have a problem with being confronted. I mean, I left that class, like, physically shaking because I, I it was... It was very, very tense. It was kind of like me to them, and, and I didn't want it to be that way, which is why I framed my, my, my argument in, in as, as compassionate of me as I could. But I didn't have a problem with them disagreeing. What I did have a problem was the fact that I was then removed from that Facebook group. And for me, that is where you cross the line from freedom of speech and, you know, the right to disagree to the point where it's discrimination. And you say you cannot exist in this online community. That's a lot to take one day in the classroom. Yeah. Um, now, moving forward, you know, what from that experience did you grasp? What, what insights could you share with us from, from that, even though it was a, a hard experience? First of all, university has not has changed from being a place where open discussion and like constructive dialogue takes place to a place where specific idea is pushed relentlessly. So that's that's my experience in the university. In terms of specifically the feminist movement, I just find it ironic because there's this idea my body, my choice. This is the rhetoric that we hear. But when it came to my body and my choice to be in that group and be part of that community because I identify as a traditional feminist, I should be included in this group. It's, it's, it's part of my, my role as a student to be involved in the different groups related to class. But when it came to me making that decision, that choice was taken away from me. And this is the problem I have with where, where feminism has gone, is that a lot of the things that they, they say are great ideas, but they don't apply them to everyone. And so that's that's what I've noticed. And so there isn't this idea of acceptance and tolerance and equality for everyone. It's only for those who, dis- who agree with us. And for those who disagree, well, 
you don't need to be in this space. You'll be eliminated. You'll be excluded. And you'll be. You are very uh, brave and strong to uh, to continue to voice this opinion. Um, now, you also voice opinions on other issues of life, uh, mm-hmm. including. You know, euthanasia, this is a hot topic in the news right now. Can you tell us your opinion on this? So the first concern I have with regards to uh, physician-assisted suicide and, and the way that it kind of connects to euthanasia is the, the fact that the government has not allowed conscience rights. So they have not allowed um, nurse practitioners and doctors who disagree with assisted suicide to opt out of performing um, physician-assisted suicides and, and referring for that. And that is a big problem because, first of all, it, it counteracts the idea of freedom of choice, which is like the right to choose, which is really ironic because that's a lot of the discourse that we hear that, that is in support of euthanasia and assisted suicide. But the other thing is that it's a direct affront to the freedom of religion. And if there are individuals of any religion who disagree with assisted suicide, which is a very uh, controversial topic for many different religious groups, then they should absolutely have the right to um, be exempt from performing that, that specific practice, that procedure. And the fact that the government has not included that and actually vote against a motion um, that would have given doctors and nurse practitioners this right means that what they're saying is essentially that you cannot have your own opinion, you cannot have your own belief, and you cannot practice your own religion in your workplace if you are a medical professional. And that is a massive problem. The other issue I have with uh, assisted suicide is who defines pain and suffering? This is the big controversy that they have right now because they talk about, you know, suffering for the foreseeable future, which is a very vague term. And they also talk about incurable and intolerable, you know, what do these words mean? But for me, the bigger question is who are we to define what pain and suffering is for one individual? That, that varies from person to person. For some people, this should be specifically for physical pain. For other people, it should be mental pain. And believe me, I know so many people who have struggled with mental health issues, severe uh, cases of depression and, and other, you know, anxiety, different things like this that cause them to endure great, great amounts of pain and suffering. And so for them, they would gladly opt into this, but, but we absolutely would not want that because we know that that is treatable, that is something that we can support them as they go through. So basically what we see in Belgium is that what started off as a very restrictive policy allowing euthanasia has shifted now to the point where there are people who are um, facing mental health issues and and very curable um, physical situations that can be, um, you know, fixed with treatment and can be met with proper support when that is in place. But because um, euthanasia and assisted suicide are kind of the more affordable options. What's happening is that people are opting into this euthanasia law, and we've seen it shift so far now that there are 12 year olds who can access this law. And that's a massive problem. I think we can all agree. Uh, we know from the case of Belgium that these restrictions are not effective, that laws do change, that shift does happen, and often in a very negative way. And two big problems are, first of all, the message that we convey to 
people, especially to those in vulnerable situations. We have right now, they have an age restriction of 18, but why 18? Why is it not 16? Why, if euthanasia is okay, why don't we open it up to everyone? That's something that's absolutely wrong that we should not allow, but what it does highlight is the arbitrariness of these restrictions that they've put in place. The other issue is that in Canada, we don't have a comprehensive framework palliative care. And that was one thing that actually the architect of the um, the law in the Netherlands, the, the euthanasia law in the Netherlands talked about, which is that when, when euthanasia was legalized, what happened is palliative care funding plummeted because euthanasia was the affordable option and why would you want to spend so much money on research? And so there are people now who will opt into euthanasia and assisted suicide specifically because the palliative care in their countries is so poor. And this is a big issue that, that a lot of Canadian citizens are worried about. And so I think when we're about to introduce something of this magnitude into our society, first of all, rushing to meet a deadline is absolutely not the right thing to do. And the other thing is we need to look at the situations in other countries. And Leah, can you speak to what's happening with the Senate right now in terms of changes to Bill C-14, um, the text on the eligibility criteria? Now, what does vagueness in this criteria mean for the issue of life and death? I think this really goes back to you know, the, the underlying issue I have that I spoke briefly about earlier, which is who defines these terms and according to what standards. So who, who am I to say that incurable pain and suffering means physical? You know, what about all the other people who are facing physical, uh, mental or psychological um, or emotional pain and suffering? You know, I, I don't believe that the law should apply to them, but, but it does highlight, you know, just this, like, who, who is coming up with these definitions? And these definitions mean different things, things to each person. And that's the problem, because we have lawmakers who are given this, this power and this authority but there's no way of ensuring that the definition that we put in place right now is, A, the, the best definition that will protect the most people, and B, the definition that will stay there throughout the next, you know, 100, 200, 300 years, or however long we have. So there's, there's nothing, there's no, no guarantee we have that, um, that these definitions are accurate and that they're, um, they're being made with the effective, um, the proper expertise and with the effective protections in place to make sure that they don't change. The, what, what they're doing now is they're just trying to take out a lot of the words so that there isn't that problem. But what that does is make it even more broad, make this euthanasia um, law, assisted suicide law, apply to even more people, which is absolutely not what we want because vulnerable men, women, and children can be put at risk because of this. What do you think can be done? What I, what I would like to see is, first of all, um, uh, conscience rights for healthcare practitioners, but also a very comprehensive framework for palliative care to make sure that people actually do have a choice and that euthanasia doesn't become the default decision, and ultimately just more protections in place to protect those um, who are vulnerable, especially uh, disabled people, because there has been a lot of concern within um, disabled communities the pressure that it puts on those in vulnerable situations, whether they're disabled or whether they're elderly um, or, or, you know, just in a very vulnerable spot. Is, and it doesn't matter whether someone is, is telling, you know, an elderly person, you know, you should choose this. If they get any sense that they are being a burden on society, that they're being a financial strain on their family, then it's very possible that they could opt into this just because they feel um, they feel that pressure, they feel that guilt, 
uh, which is absolutely not what we want. We don't want to be sending that message to people that light, their lives are no longer valuable because their lives absolutely are. Well, Leah, thank you for being a, a voice on, on these issues. What keeps you going? What keeps you uh, motivated to speak out, even when there is retaliation, uh, even when your opinion might not be popular opinion? Uh, what is that motivating force for you? Well, first of all, um, I, I do it because I, I know that God wants me to and because it's the call that God has placed on my life. And, you know, when I, when I fight and when I stand up for truth, I, I feel his pleasure. I feel his smile over me. Um, but, but even from, you know, like a non-spiritual perspective, I, I do it because it's what's right. And even though it's not easy, and there are days, especially in, you know, a feminist program, there are days that are very, very difficult to get through. And I'm, I really care about people, and I'm, I'm an incredibly passionate person, and I really care about justice. And so um, what I want to see is justice and equality and human rights for the most amount of people. And so that's one reason why I oppose abortion. That's one reason why I stand against euthanasia and assisted suicide, because I care about people and I care about uh, life and the ways that people are put at risk by these procedures, hearing that a life was saved or hearing that someone didn't choose abortion and hearing, you know, that, that there is support for a woman who might have chosen abortion, but now doesn't have to because she has practical, tangible resources. Um, these are the things that kind of keep me going and keep me passionate. Well, Leah, you are a very passionate and compassionate person. Um, you also are an author. You have a book coming out this summer. Um, yeah. Tell us about that. So basically, my book is an autobiography, which was a little bit strange to write because I'm only 19 years old, but it's an autobiography that kind of chronicles the, the journey of me from 12 to 19 and just the seven years and what I learned in between then. There is some basic, you know, pro-life apologetics in there, but I talk a lot about my position now as, you know, a traditional feminist in a feminist program and my experiences there. And I really explain why I choose now to to label myself as being pro-woman, pro-choice, pro-life. Pro-woman, pro-choice, pro-life. Leah Mills, thank you so much uh, for speaking with us at Context. Now, if someone wants to get a hold of the book, A, what will the title be? And uh, where can they find it when it's out this summer? So the title is called An Inconvenient Life, which is kind of a play on, you know, my accidental exposure to the pro-life movement, but also just the idea of inconvenience and, and how the role that plays in encouraging women to choose abortion. People want to kind of stay connected. They can go to my website, which is leahmills.ca. And uh, at Context with Lorna Dewick, we will also release details about this book uh, when it is released this summer. Thank you so much, Leah Mills, um, for your advocacy and your compassion and for uh, speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Christina. It was an honor.